Welcome to the Other Half of Church podcast, a podcast at the intersection of brain science, theology, and church life. With Michael Hendricks and Jim Wilder, we explore the brain God has given us and what we need for a healthy, transformational community of faith. Welcome to this special edition of the Other Half of Church podcast. The audiobook for The Other Half of Church just released, and we want you to get a sneak peek. Over the next three weeks, we'll be dropping a chapter of the book into your podcast feed. So without further delay, here's the introduction and chapter one. You are listening to The Other Half of Church, Christian Community, Brain Science, and Overcoming Spiritual Stagnation. Written by Michael Hendricks and Jim Wilder. Narrated by Brian Conover. Chapter 2. How do people grow? So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Ephesians 4, 11-13 I became a pastor in a roundabout way. I did not aim my career toward ministry. I had a corporate job doing something I enjoyed. I started going to seminary part-time, but not with the intent of becoming a pastor. Hunger was my motivation. I wanted more than I was receiving from my church. I took my time, taking two classes a semester. I completed my three-year degree, if done full-time, in 11 years. The president of the seminary joked about my longevity during the graduation ceremony. I loved seeing nuances in the New Testament in Greek. My eyes were opened by studying the growth of Christianity around the world. Knowing more about God and the Bible satisfied my hunger. Still, it left me wanting more character change. My knowledge and understanding had increased but my character had not improved as much as I had hoped. Over time, I became more involved in a growing church, eventually as a part of the leadership. I was asked to join the elder team, and I became friends with many of the pastors and elders. While attending an intense men's weekend with several pastors, I felt connected and encouraged in a way that I had not for many years. During that weekend, we worked on the darkest experiences of our past with the support of other men. They looked us in the eyes and blessed us. I was deeply moved. Almost immediately, my pastor started recruiting me. Why not quit your job and do this for a living with our church? The this he was talking about was discipleship. Our church lacked a plan for spiritual growth. We were good at getting people into an auditorium and giving them a taste of the love and grace of Jesus. We were scattered and unfocused when it came to the next steps. The title of this chapter came from a question I often asked God as the pastor of spiritual formation. I wanted to help our people grow as Christians. When I saw the crowds streaming into the lobby of our church, I wondered, how do I help these people grow and mature? I also asked the question of myself. I had the privilege of creating my own job description, and I leaned on two scriptures for help. The first was Matthew 28, 18-20. 
These words were particularly interesting because they were the last commands Jesus gave his closest friends. This commission was left ringing in the disciples' ears after Jesus handed them the keys of the church and left earth. He was reminding them of their primary responsibility as his chosen leaders. He said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. Over the centuries, these words were given a title, The Great Commission that clearly states the mission Jesus gave the leaders of his church, go and make disciples. According to Jesus, disciple-making has two steps. The first step is to baptize people. Jesus is using a literary device where he is wrapping up the process of evangelism into one word. This first step, baptizing, includes talking to our friends about Jesus and telling them our experience of his love. We invite them into our communities, our churches, our homes. We love them. We give them a taste of God's kingdom and share the good news of the hope we have in Jesus. When God opens the eyes of their hearts to His love and salvation, a miracle happens. They are saved. They enter into a relationship meant to be so transformational that they become new creatures. We celebrate salvation with a vivid sacrament. Baptism is a symbol that we died and rose again from the grave. We have a brand new life. In the Great Commission, Jesus combines this whole process into the word baptize. This is the first step of discipleship. The second step in the Great Commission is to teach people to obey everything Jesus has commanded us. If you mistakenly think that Jesus' commission only applied to the original disciples, the Apostle Paul repeats the second step in Ephesians 4, 12-13. Paul's restatement is the other scripture I used to form my job description. Paul specifically directs this teaching to leaders, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Their central responsibility is to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. In this second step, leaders help their people grow to maturity. Jesus and Paul expect the long, slow work of character formation. The goal of discipleship, when it fulfills its purpose, is maturity. Any discipleship process that does not bring a person to maturity has failed to achieve its goal. Christian leaders direct their people in the process of spiritual formation until they become people who have the character of Christ. I saw the Great Commission as my job description. It gave me the what, but not the how. I still needed an answer to the question in the title of this chapter. How do people grow? As a pastor, I would sit in my office and ponder that question. Do I just tell people what to do? Do I give them a list of the do's and don'ts? Does everyone just need the right information? I quickly found out that information alone was insufficient. 
In spite of my unanswered question, I did my best to follow Paul's teaching in Ephesians 4, 11-13. I started developing a path for the people in our church to grow to maturity. My first step was writing a short book on the basics of the Christian faith. We had many brand new Christians in our community. Many of them had never read a single book of the Bible. They reminded me of myself when I first became a Christ follower. I wanted to give them an accessible introduction to the basics, so I called my book Basic Training for Walking with Jesus. I made it easy to read. When I was a new Christian, people often used religious words that I did not understand. I was careful to explain words before using them and assumed no prior knowledge of the Bible. We handed out more than 20,000 copies, and the feedback was encouraging. For example, one man wrote to me saying that while reading basic training, his young daughter sat down next to him. He was surprised when she asked, Daddy, would you read this book to me? A few chapters in, she said, Daddy, I want to follow Jesus. Can you help me become a Christian? I heard many stories like that. The results were encouraging. My little book helped people grow. Sometimes. Basic training often helped people gain a stronger grasp of God's love and the new life Jesus offers. Other times, it didn't seem to work at all. Sometimes people who had read basic training would act as if they had not read it. For example, I wrote a chapter on forgiveness and how all of our sins have been forgiven in Christ, past, present, and future. Often, people who had read the book struggled to believe God had forgiven the horrible things they had done. When I pointed out scriptures that clearly taught that God forgives us, it did not seem to help them. They needed something more. If I evaluate my book, I would say that it worked really well sometimes. The word sometimes began to bother me as a pastor. Why does this work sometimes? Dallas Willard and the Great Omission In my search for answers, I devoured the books of Dallas Willard. You may not be familiar with him, but Willard taught and wrote extensively on the importance of transformation and discipleship in the Christian life. Willard believed that spiritual formation is the central task of the local congregation, the primary responsibility that Jesus gave Christian leaders. Our job as pastors, first and foremost, is to build the character of Jesus into people's lives. We focus on changing people on the inside. Since our inner character transformation drives everything else we do, discipleship must be central. Unfortunately, when he looked at churches, he noted a pattern of neglect. Spiritual formation was pushed to the side by leaders who focused on other priorities and projects. When this happened, character formation became ineffective, watered down, or dropped altogether. Christian leaders often did not take character transformation seriously. Poor character was the elephant in the church no one wanted to acknowledge. Willard believed that obedience comes from inner character transformation, what he called the renovation of the heart. In his opinion, disappointingly few hearts were being renovated. The lack of discipleship was so widespread that Willard labeled this failure the Great Omission. 
He had a good sense of humor and was making a play on words with the Great Commission. When he looked at the Great Commission and then looked how churches were trying to fulfill it, Willard concluded that most were focused on the first step and ignored or watered down the second step. Churches were trying to reach lost people with the good news of Jesus. Once people were saved, they were left in permanent spiritual kindergarten without a path to maturity. The modern church aims to get people into heaven rather than to get heaven into people. Many pastors and leaders are not taking the second step of the Great Commission seriously. Dallas Willard's mission was to put discipleship back at the center of church where it belongs. He believed that leaders must become possessed by the importance of discipleship. There are many good things pastors can do, but discipleship is the one thing pastors must do. All other activities and programs work best when they flow from a robust maturity formed through discipleship. When discipleship becomes the exclusive primary goal of the local congregation, everything a church accomplishes is done in the character of Christ. Willard urged churches to create a curriculum for Christ-likeness, a well-designed, intently pursued path to maturity. Everyone in a Christian community should receive robust discipleship training. He encouraged readers to ask their pastors something like, What is your plan for teaching our people to do everything Christ commanded? Every group that takes its purpose seriously trains their people. The military uses basic training that incoming civilians must endure in order to become soldiers. Every professional sports team has a specific and rigorous training program to turn amateurs into professional athletes. Most churches have no such program. This is the great omission. As I read Willard's books, I still wondered, how? How does a church provide a path to maturity? How do we help people change? How is a heart renovated? His answer was spiritual disciplines. He said, Disciplines are activities that are in our power and that enable us to do what we cannot do by direct effort. A simple list of spiritual disciplines would include scripture meditation, solitude, silence, fasting, prayer, service, and celebration. As we make spiritual disciplines a part of our intentional daily practices, they will change us from the inside out. The changes we see may be slow and involve hard work, but over time, we expect fundamental changes in our character. After reading about spiritual disciplines, I immediately went to work. I created a Bible reading plan for everyone in our church. I also started training people in spiritual disciplines. During the five-week training, everyone had a chance to practice. We focused on different disciplines each week, and I helped them unpack their experiences. By the end of five weeks, they had practiced nine spiritual disciplines. Over 600 people went through the training, and the results were encouraging. One woman commented after the last week, I had no idea this type of work existed in the church. Thank you for creating this. Another man credited the training with saving his marriage. I was encouraged because people were growing. Sometimes.
There's that word again. If I'm honest, my results with disciplines were mixed. Some people were blown away by the changes they saw in their lives. Other people seemed resistant, almost impervious. Something was missing. The results were inconsistent, and I wondered why. My quest to understand transformation still had missing pieces. I kept wondering and praying. How do I help people grow? Why don't I see more character transformation? It was around this time that I first had lunch with Jim Wilder. God answered my prayers. The Brain and Discipleship When Jim Wilder explained to Bob, John, and me how the brain works, we learned that character change requires full brain engagement. I realized that the materials and trainings I created for my church leaned heavily toward the left brain. I overlooked the dominant side for character change, the right brain. Jim believes that right brain relational skills should be among the first things we teach new believers because this is the pattern we see in Jesus' life. Our love for Jesus, a right brain attachment function, is what produces obedience. We see an example of this in John 14, 22-24. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. Notice the order. Judas wonders why Jesus doesn't reveal himself to everyone. Jesus says that he reveals himself only to those who love him. Love is the first step. We love Jesus and we will obey. When we do not love Jesus, we will not obey him. We will see in later chapters that our loving attachment to Jesus forms our character. A left-brain view of Jesus' teaching would conclude that we need to choose to obey, and this will prove that we love him. This is exactly backwards. If I want to obey Jesus, I need to focus on right-brain skills that help me love him and receive his love. My behavior will then take care of itself. Our brains are designed to change us through love. The development of our relational and emotional life helps our soil be more fruitful, while the spiritual disciplines remove obstacles to our growth. If I lack right brain relational development, the spiritual disciplines will be less effective. Even healthy seeds will not grow well in depleted soil. Now we see the common problem in churches, even when taking the Great Commission seriously. We often focus on building our personal relationship with Jesus, yet fail to integrate people into a community. Full-brained discipleship contains both. Half-brained Christianity emphasizes left-brain skills, truth, doctrine, teaching, evangelism skills, ministry strategies, and neglects right-brain relational and emotional skills. A full-brained discipleship maintains both in balance. When Christian leaders do not train people in love, relational skills, and identity, this neglect produces a half-baked discipleship. 
most leaders, like me, have never developed their own maturity skills. Churches are filled with leaders who are gifted at theology, preaching, and vision casting, but may not have relational and emotional skills. Negative headlines reveal their prevalence in ministry. Dallas Willard wrote that pastors often focus on less important tasks and push aside the most important job of discipleship. This is a natural result of left-brained Christianity, which gravitates towards strategies that are measurable. Number of dollars, number of people, number of campuses, number of small groups. The slow, messy work of character formation, which is hard to measure, is displaced by quantifiable goals. If we try to measure the progress of Jesus' ministry over three years, the numbers would be disappointing. Yet, Jesus never took his eyes off of his primary responsibility. He spent three years building up the character of twelve young men. If you are wondering whether discipleship is easy to measure, look at the results of these three years. Even for the Son of God, the results were often messy and disappointing. Jesus was teaching them how to live in the kingdom of God on earth, and this is hard to plug into a spreadsheet. Dallas Willard affirmed my reality when he observed that discipleship in the church often gets watered down or ignored. Jim Wilder would add a third possibility. Our discipleship can also be ineffective because it is left-brain dominant instead of full-brained. Left-brain discipleship explains the inconsistency I saw as a pastor of spiritual formation. Practices seem to work for some people, but not for others. What I realized later was that the people who did not respond to training likely had right-brain obstacles. Low joy, isolation, a lack of loving community, poor identity formation, and unhealed trauma. Each of these was a relational-slash-emotional problem requiring right-brain development. As a pastor, I did not realize that these obstacles even existed. I was ignorant of relational skills and could offer my people encouragement, prayer, scripture, and spiritual disciplines. For some, it worked well. For others, not at all. Let's compare the experiences of Greg and Chris. Greg was a new Christian who had never read the Bible. I put him on our Bible reading plan and I started meeting with him monthly. I told him to bring any questions he had to our meeting, and I would do my best to give him answers. His reading progress was up and down. Some months, he was excited and had lots of questions. Other times, he sheepishly admitted that he hadn't done the reading. I showed him grace and told him that this is normal, but not to give up. Not only did he not give up, but he grabbed three friends and they all jumped on the plan together. After six months, he had read through the entire New Testament for the first time in his life. He commented, Now, in church, when the pastor teaches on a scripture, I realize that I already know that verse. I am surprised by how different I feel after reading the Bible every day. Similarly, I met with Chris. Unlike Greg, Chris grew up in a Christian family. When I realized that he did not know much of the Bible, I asked whether he would like to try the spiritual discipline of scripture study. I challenged him to start our Bible reading plan.
The reaction on his face surprised me. He looked like I was challenging him to endure torture. I also detected shame, even though I was happy to do it with him. He started to distance himself from me, and I wondered what had happened. Later, he shared several bad experiences he had with Christian leaders pressuring him to do things. He had a block with reading the Bible. I did not know how to handle that. Nothing in my seminary education prepared me for this problem. Chris had a low level of joy and painful memories of being pressured to read the Bible. Memories tripped up his right brain processing when I challenged him to start a Bible reading plan. I offered him spiritual disciplines but ignored developing his heart. I set him up for failure. We will see in the next chapter that when joy is low, our brain is not in a state that responds well to spiritual practices, including reading the Bible. As a pastor, I offered a full suite of left-brain strategies. I didn't know that right-brained skills existed. This explained the inconsistent results I saw in my church. I offered resources to help people learn theology, a predominantly left-brained activity. I promoted a plan to help people study the Bible, a predominantly left-brained activity. I created a training to help people use spiritual disciplines to help them grow. Mostly left-brain-centered disciplines, although some are unintentionally right-brained disciplines too. These spiritual disciplines are important. Yet, we will soon discover that fruit will be inconsistent when there is low joy, shallow relational attachments, unstable identity, weak community. I began to meet with Jim more frequently. We talked about the theory of how people change, and I tried out some right-brain skills. As I began practicing these new exercises, I realized why spiritual disciplines worked sometimes and not others. If we take into account the right brain, the mystery clears up. My training had neglected an important area of spiritual growth, and, as a result, my people had not been nurtured according to the way God designed the human brain. With my questions about how God designed us to grow and why so many churches see so little character transformation answered, I turned to finding out how we got here. Over the last 400 years, the cultural ground around the church has shifted. Philosophical developments from the Enlightenment altered the way we looked at ourselves as humans. The mind was elevated to be the most important part of our humanity. This emphasis on thinking and reasoning created an environment where knowledge and science flourished, with many benefits for humanity. However, many Christians began seeing themselves as mostly a mind, or as James K.A. Smith has coined it, brains on a stick. Perhaps we should say, half a brain on a stick. Some pastors and leaders saw this philosophical shift as a threat to God's authority. Reason and skepticism replaced God's word as the path to knowledge and fulfillment. However, many Christian thought leaders agreed that our minds were the most important aspect of our humanity. Christianity followed Enlightenment culture 
and slowly became focused on correct thinking. The importance of teaching people to love by creating loving communities was neglected. In this new world, it became more important to be right than loving. The proliferation of denominational splits and the ongoing failure of Christian leaders point to an over-reliance of espousing right beliefs and neglecting maturity. If you haven't experienced people in church being right at the expense of being loving, you haven't been paying attention. Without an awareness of the brain's role in forming identity, Christian leaders gravitated toward left-brain strategies and neglected right-brain loving attachments. Discipleship became unbalanced. Christians thought of themselves as people with the right answers. Truth and choice became the recipe to get into heaven. Pastors primarily prepared for preaching positions through education, not character formation. Like their pastors, most Christians possessed truth, but weren't trained how to love well. The Industrial Revolution intensified the problem by breaking down the relational bonds that held families and communities together. The last several centuries produced a society that is less relationally connected. Multiple generations no longer lived and grew old in the same towns. Grandparents now visited their grandchildren several times a year instead of being integrated into their upbringing. Parents worked outside the home. Children grew up in childcare facilities and schools. Families seldom worked together. Watching screens increasingly dominated our relaxation time, replacing face-to-face -face interaction. Right-brain dominant relational skills were slowly being lost. The practices that transmit these emotional and relational skills have been interrupted. Culture was losing its full-brained relational skills as the church followed along. I saw the effects of this relational breakdown in churches where I was involved. Often I felt like I was swimming against the current, trying to keep character formation as our central task. Bigger and better was like a siren call to abandon the messy work of discipleship, developing relational skills, and pursuing inner transformation. I saw leaders being swayed by the appeal of bigger meetings, more campuses, and more small groups. These goals were not bad in themselves, but they were accompanied by an unstated change in priorities. Discipleship, which these churches once championed, was slowly pushed off to the side and watered down. Eventually, spiritual formation was de-resourced and discontinued. The great omission triumphed again. Dallas Willard was prophetic. He wrote about the tendency for churches to lose interest in discipleship. In Renovation of the Heart, he wrote that the survival and success of the institution becomes the priority instead of spiritual formation. Discipleship to Christ is either dropped altogether, he writes, or is redefined as devotion to the institution. Even if a church gives lip service to spiritual formation, too often leaders are not willing to do the hard work it involves. After all, if we are changed by information, good sermons and Bible studies, why put effort into spiritual formation that is slow and messy? Pastors and elders often feel pressure 
to get fast results that look impressive. Discipleship does not excite a leader whose eyes are fixed on numbers. Dallas saw this so often that he once complained to a friend that many people were reading his books and talking about spiritual formation, but few were actually doing it. In modern thinking, character is transformed by truth, correct thinking, and good choices. However, this formula does not translate into character formation. I do not want to imply that truth and choice are unimportant. The error is believing that thinking, by itself, forms character. What started with an elevated view of the human mind has developed into the great omission. This failure of our churches is a natural result of half-brained Christianity. We now see how philosophical and anthropological priorities in the last 400 years have led to an endemic lack of character transformation in the Western Church. It might sound like a humiliating experience for me to realize I was a half-brained Christian. Admittedly, I was a pastor in charge of helping people grow who didn't know how to help them. I can see how that might be embarrassing. Quite the contrary, I was elated. When I realized that my training was ignoring half of my brain, I also realized that there was an entire half of my brain just sitting there waiting to be trained. I finally had answers to the puzzling inconsistency I saw in myself and others. The neuroscience of character transformation taught me to use my entire brain. I was excited to experience a full-brained faith and eager to share it with others. As of the writing of this book, my wife and I have been practicing right-brain skills for two years. I will explain our training in a later chapter, but the results we see in our lives are surprising in a particular way. I find myself spontaneously acting more like Jesus, without even thinking about it. I am growing again like I did my first eight years as a Christian. This book is not about the specifics of our training but rather the relational environment required for training to work. I am writing about relational soil. Many churches and families are trying to grow in depleted soil. The relational nutrients are run down and exhausted. In order to find out how the great omission becomes the great commission again, we will look at the four building blocks of healthy soil. When these four nutrients are missing, we see shriveled, fruitless plants. There is little transformation because the parts of our brain that work to grow our character are malnourished and underdeveloped. Like in my tomato garden, healthy soil is essential for vibrant growth. Not all growth is good. There is a relational disease that spreads like a weed in depleted soil. We must examine an invasive weed in the church and you may wonder why. What do weeds have to do with character growth? We will see that the four ingredients so essential for Christ-like character, when absent, present the ideal soil for growing narcissism. Left-brain communities not only produce meager character growth, but produce a garden where narcissism thrives and spreads. Half-brained churches and families end up growing the wrong thing. I see a surprising opportunity here.
The same soil needed for character growth is simultaneously resistant to narcissism. As in my garden, the place we start improving the harvest is in the soil. Fortifying the soil of our Christian communities will involve rethinking our way of living. In the next chapter, we will look at the first ingredient, the often misunderstood concept of joy. Here are some closing thoughts. When we fail to understand how people grow, we lose track of the central task Jesus gave the church. Having no plan for transformation produces Christians with poor character who try to do good ministry. Jesus did the opposite. He started his ministry by preaching about a transformed inner life that drives the outer life. A transformed inner life then drives everything we do. You've been listening to the Other Half of Church podcast, a podcast at the intersection of brain science, theology, and church life. To learn more about the book by Jim Wilder and Michael Hendricks, visit theotherhalfofchurch.com.